but directly, literally by not wearing masks and promoting spread, directly results in further delays until we can open the country back up. Again, this is my opinion now. I believe that the risk is probably mortality-wise, you know, the, the, the evidence, the jury is still out. It's probably, for, for me specifically, it's probably twice that of the flu. Majority of people go home, or if they don't go home and they stay overnight, they're, they're in an area of the hospital well away from where the COVID patients would be. So there, they, there really is no, nothing to fear from, from the patient's perspective. Children can get and spread virus in this asymptomatic way that we're talking about, meaning that they have no symptoms, they have virus, and they give it to their teacher and other people, they give it to grandma, and then those individuals get sick. So we have to be aware of that. For every one percentage point of unemployment, every one percentage point increase, and I qualify that because that's sustained for six years, you get 33,000 extra deaths as I would say, collateral damage from other health morbidities such as suicide, homicide, domestic violence, cardiovascular disease. Since we're all living in the age of COVID and dealing with this fallout, many questions arise. Should we worry about our future? About our children? Should we worry about hospitalization? I talk with Dr. Rich and Dr. Winter about how to beat COVID-19. On this episode, of the healthcare experience with Tom Glander. Practicing in the era of COVID, re-engagement with patients and the healthcare system. If if I may, um, I do wanna kind of set the stage because there are 40 billion opinions about there about what COVID means, what um, the quote unquote evidence says, and there are certainly different motivating factors that uh, are behind um, these different dialogues. So, you know, we have to understand there is the biological disease process. Beyond that, there is the political machine process. There's also an economic consideration. And lastly, there is a separate health crisis that starts to evolve in a system where, um, as a society, we start to behave differently. What we're not going to talk about is we're not going to talk about political implications in any way. We would like to communicate the scientific evidence that which is available um, kind of explain the evolution of recommendation and how that process has changed uh, over the last six months. And um, also, as a, as a healthcare practitioner, as a scientist, how this impacts um, our patients' access to healthcare. So there are a lot of patients that uh, main, mainly maybe do not have enough um, concern about the virus, but more likely patients that have too much concern and are actually avoiding necessary health care um, to their detriment. So I think if, if we can start uh, in that place and we'll kind of talk about um, what are, in my opinion, some of the most relevant topics, which are, what do we do now? Do we need to wear masks? Where are we going? What are the next interventions? And the conjecture part of this based on scientific models. uh, So this is all, you know, um, expert opinion at that point. When do we see an end? So if I can start with that, where are we now? Um, You know, six months into the way that the pandemic has affected Certainly California, where you guys are at, Texas mm-hmm. and Florida are now the new hot zones. So New York and, frankly, the entire East Coast um, every day has fewer and fewer cases. Um, they're, they're well down on their plateau. And 
the three you know states that I mentioned are um, were I should say able to flatten the curve, uh, which essentially means there were fewer cases diagnosed than the day before. After the reopening, um, those cases had a secondary surge, and now we're looking for best practice to again flatten that curve, taking into consideration, if you will, the collateral damage, the economic collateral damage to the nation, the health collateral damage to the nation. So um, it's, it's balanced. And, and you might say there is no perfect solution. So we have to go based off the best available evidence now. We have to employ strategies that, allow us to function as a country while mitigating the risk as well as we can and also have some semblance of, of a life. And, and um, I say that jokingly because we're all like, oh, geez, you know, we can't go out, we can't do things, but there are health implications. So uh, there was a study about 10 years ago that looked at unemployment rates. So for every one percentage point of unemployment rate, that correlates with 33,000 subsequent deaths if sustained over a six-year time period, um, not the least of which is suicide, but also cardiovascular death, uh, domestic violence, and these types of things. So, Wait, can I interrupt you? If you're, say that again. Give me the percentage again. I kind of lost that. Well, so the, the correlation. Every, for every one percentage point of unemployment, every one percentage point increase, and I qualify that because that's sustained for six years, you get 33,000 extra deaths, as I would say, collateral damage from other health morbidities such as suicide, homicide, domestic violence, cardiovascular disease. So, wow. Beyond the economic consequences that we're also talking about, there are real-world health consequences. So we do have to find a way. Now, there was one um, scientific model that was done. Um, I'm not going to cite the location because I can't remember where it was. But essentially what they said is if 95% of people wear masks, that would be more effective at disease uh, acquisition and death at preventing those than a complete shutdown. And so the three strategies that we've talked about, um, not at the beginning, and I'll explain why we didn't talk about mask wearing in the beginning, but the three strategies that have evolved is the three W's. Wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your distance, right? So if you do those three things, if you can keep six feet apart, wear a mask, um, we're going to be able to return to that plateau. And the end game um, is a vaccine. That, that's the end game. So all we're doing is we're delaying, we're trying to keep hospitals from getting overcrowded and we're delaying the number of infections until we can get a vaccine to prevent. Um, and I don't know that this is a conversation for vaccines. We can certainly have that conversation on another, on another podcast. But let me just say, because there's you know, a small percentage, but loud percentage of the population that um, would suggest that you, know, you have to not vaccinate um, the case fatality rate currently, if you just look at the numbers in the United States, is about 3%. Okay, case fatality meaning confirmed cases and those number of people that uh, will die from the virus. Okay, the population fatality rate, because there are plenty of people that aren't tested, is probably closer to 0.2, maybe twice to five times that of the, of the flu. But if you look at that, even best case scenario, one in 200 population risk of death, you're looking at one in 7,600,000 risk of death, and that's theoretical from a vaccine. So it, it's a separate universe. 
that consideration. So when the vaccine comes, um, and not just the COVID vaccine, everybody needs to get a flu vaccine as well, um, understanding um, that it's, you know, none of these things are 100%. Um, and I would, and, and people also use that argument for wearing masks. Well, if it's not 100%, I'm not even going to do it. So we're not talking about disease prevention. We're talking about risk reduction, okay? And, and the, the common sense analogy I would use is if you're, if you're going to skydive, do you not wear a parachute because it's not 100%, right? So mm -hmm. that, that you don't throw up your hands and say it's, 100%, it's not 100%, so we're not going to do it. This is the strategy. This is the best available strategy that we have. Right, and if used optimally, projections uh, suggest, and even an eighty percent uh, universal mask wearing. There, there's a estimate that you would save thirty-three thousand lives by October first, if from now everybody, or not everybody, even eighty percent of people, were to wear a mask. So we can go into the scientific evidence behind mask wearing, but I will uh, probably. Put a pin in it. Well, well, a couple of things with without getting into it into much detail as far as mass, I will tell you what I said in March is very different than how I look at it now, because there is some. This is, I mean, it's like wait, wait a minute, time time out, go back. This is a novel virus, meaning never been for, never before seen in the history of mankind. So we are we are trying to figure this out as we go along, and figure figure out why is it acting the way it is because it's a little bit different than anything. It's 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 kind of sort of a cold virus, but it's it, it obviously ha has a lot more implications than than the common cold uh, as far as increased uh, rate of, of uh, mortality or death rate from it. So, so like I said, things have evolved, and as they evolve, and I think Tom, you're you're right on on point. Mess, the messaging gene has not been um, as clear as it could have been or should have been uh, uh, about about why we're changing um, recommendations. And you almost have to read through the lines to figure out, oh, that's what happened. Yeah, but anyways. Um, as far as what's happened with us, it's been interesting because I, I think li literally everybody's world has been rocked, um, you know, starting, starting, especially March when we shut down. I, I know I was, I was pretty much at home for, for almost two months um, before we open, reopened the practice. And even then it was a slow reopening and then, we kind of figured out how to toggle in, in this new world. Um, and I, I think it's important because there's obviously there's certain, so I'm, you know, just a gynecologist um, and especially talking about infectious disease. I'm not an infectious disease expert. I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm a scientist at heart and we try to put things together and, and figure out ways that makes sense to toggle in this world for now, um, you know, and, until there is a vaccine, just what Rick was saying. So there were some un, unintended consequences and some things I, I didn't think about. I, I remember talking to one of the emergency room physicians, and this was in May as we were just starting to try to open things up. And he basically said, yeah, we've had our share of COVID patients, but it's a ghost town. And we've got our systems down. We figured out how we can separate uh, potential COVID patients from everybody else, keep everybody away from them, separate staff. We've got it figured out. It's extremely safe, yet people are having heart attacks and not coming into the hospital. And it's crazy what, what, what's going on, that people were so frightened that you walk into a hospital and you're immediately going to get COVID. And, and obviously that's not been the case. That is not the case. Um, it, it, it's very safe um, to go to a hospital, to get treated 
It's, it's totally cleaner. Our office has always been clean, right? And, and it's much cleaner. I, I mean, the things we're wiping down, everything at the beginning of the day and in between patients and limiting the amount of people that are in the office, we're, we're um, unfortunately limiting support people so that the waiting room, we are able to not feel overcrowded, to social distance as best we can. And we're very cognizant of that. And so a couple things struck me as we opened up is that one, that worked and it worked well. We, we felt comfortable. I, I think our patients are very comfortable. They're very happy to be getting care. And a lot of the, the again, it's not necessarily life-threatening things, but annoying things, quality of life things, preventive health measures, getting, you know, we do some primary care in addition to gynecologic specialty work and um, obstetrics within my practice. And, and people were, were really happy. They were being proactive for their health. And, and I think there, there's a physical aspect to that. There's a mental aspect to that. And I, I think that was a real problem and, and again, depending on your perspective, I think more and more people seem to be comfortable with getting the care that they need right now. Um, I've had a couple people, and, and usually they have significant um, morbidities or, or medical issues that put them at a little higher risk, and they, they, they're kind of very much isolating. But even a lot of people that have some morbidities are choosing to have care and do surgery. Uh, I'm I'm busier now than I've been um, ever in in a lot of ways because we have this this pent up demand and we're kind of catching up at the same time we have our usual demand. Um, so it's 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 been challenging trying to take care of everybody in a timely fashion, but it's it's worked well. Um, I, I think it's been interesting in California because we, we had the initial surge and then we had a, a significant decrease in cases. And then as we became more mobile and, um, to be expected to some degree and, and, you know, being in the Sun Belt, people, are, people are active and, and social, so to speak, uh, you know, we saw an uptick and kind of had to pull back a little bit from some of the things that were open. And, and, and I'm not sure how much it was the pulling back or how much it's just, I think, people being a little bit more aware of um, the three W's and, and what needs to be done. And now we're, we are definitely seeing a decrease in cases, a decrease in hospitalizations. The death rate's still high because that lags, but that's going to come down. 100% that's going to come down in the next week or two, um, maybe, maybe even quicker, because we're catching up with all that. That's important for people to understand that it's not – explain the lag, either one of you, uh, in, in death rate. Why is that important? Um, well, well, you're going you're gonna to see – if you see an increase in cases, right, mm -hmm. then a certain percentage – a lot of those people are going to be fine and, and – um, I, I'm, I'm lucky to say I've had um, five direct family members um, ha have had COVID and all of them are alive and well and, and no significant sequelae. They're, they're doing fine, right? Um, so a lot of people aren't, aren't – the cases that you see, there's actually more cases than what you see that are really going on, mm -hmm. um, maybe by a factor of tenfold. Mm. And then – of those cases, as they go up, you're going to see an increase in the amount of hospitalizations because a, a small percentage of those are going to need to be hospitalized. And of those hospitalizations, you're going to see, as that goes up, you're going to see an increase in some of the very sick people who will be in the ICU. And typically, it take from that point, it will take two or three weeks before, unfortunately, they would die. So even though other people are getting better as the case cases go down 
hospitalizations will follow that and go down, but but you still have a number of people who at this point are are on that in the ICU and, and again going to be there for two three weeks before they before they die. So that's that's why it lags. Okay. So when we see the numbers that are shown on on TV or people say this many people die, we have to re- remember that is that's from people that have been previously. It's taken some time to get to that point. Right. Exactly, and and what's what we're seeing here is very predictable. So it makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't mean things are getting worse at that point. If especially where we are right now, I'd say things are much better in Southern California than they've been in the last three weeks. Where we are now. Okay, great. I mean, that's good news, and I think the biggest thing that I'd like people to come away with is that there's nothing to be afraid of i mean the fear is is a big detriment in itself and what can you what can you share that would help relieve that so people are not afraid of this um i mean i I would i would say that um as it you know i'll speak generally about fear and then i'll speak specifically about uh needed health care yes because of fear which can be detrimental. So um, it's hard to give a percentage, but the vast majority of infections are caused uh, through the respiratory route. So one person being sick, puts droplets in the air, somebody else gets it. Now they've done laboratory studies where they've scraped stuff off of paper and envelopes and doorknobs and they've shown the presence of the actual RNA strand of the virus, but it is extremely unlikely that that is enough to cause an inoculum which would result in an infection. So if you're going to spend energy and devote time to protecting yourself and others, 95% of that is the three W's. Okay. Mm-hmm. All, this washing down your groceries and all this other stuff, you're spending a lot of time kind of trapped in, you know, fear. Um, and most of that, frankly, is going to be wasted energy. Um, you know, a hundred people wash their groceries and one person wear a mask, that one person wearing a mask is going to be more effective at preventing. So I would suggest, you know, we don't need to, power in fear and never leave the house. Um, but I do think that we have to develop some intelligence around what are effective strategies to protect ourselves and others. And I would say specifically about healthcare, um, it, it is easily more detrimental to ignore chest pain, to ignore a right lower quadrant you know, pain, possible appendicitis. And, you know, this isn't hypothetical. Uh, and I'm sure Mark has seen it too, but our ER colleagues are saying, yeah, these, you know, people are coming in after they've had the cardiac event where the, you know, the, the myocardium, it, it's damaged. It's dead now. We can't save it. Had they come in at their first symptom, you know, they, they, you know perhaps we would have been able to stent or do whatever we needed to do to prevent that. And so, you know, we, we don't need to be so afraid of this thing that we avoid caring for ourselves. And we frankly end up doing more harm than good. We just have to have awareness, intelligence, and, you know, implement the strategies that are suggested. And we will get through this. We will delay this and we'll get to that point. Um, and another thing that's been said a million times that we'll just reiterate, Mark brought it up, um, the most vulnerable population are the elderly and those with comorbidities and those that are immunocompromised. Um, so for the you know, age population, the, the relative risk for someone in their 40s is about you know, uh, four times less than someone in their late 60s. And someone in their 80s, someone in their eighties is ten times higher than someone in their sixties. So just we have to be aware of 
if you have those risk factors, you need to be a little bit more cautious. We as a population need to be um, aware of protecting that at-risk population. You know, there's some consideration to opening the schools um, and younger, the, the younger, uh, under nine, um, there's been zero confirmed, 100% uh, confirmed deaths related to COVID. So that population is extremely low risk. It's actually the teachers that are at risk. So as we think about bringing schools back online, we need to, you know, can, uh, put our efforts towards protecting, you know, that population. And if you need healthcare, and you know, Mark and I are GYN, so if you need, if you're if you're having bleeding and you might be anemic and you might, you know, have consequences from that. Um, if you're young and healthy, if you go to a doctor's office, you know, as Mark said, we're as clean as we can get, you know. Um, if you go to the hospital, if you go to a hospital or a physician's office, the measures are in place where we're checking temperatures, we're asking screening questions, we're social distancing, we're wearing masks, we're washing hands. There's a hundred percent or as close to hundred percent as you can get um, adherence to all those guidelines, you're actually safer in a doctor's office or a hospital than you are anywhere outside of your own home. Because I guarantee you restaurants and bars aren't taking all of those measures, okay? So um, you don't need to live in fear. You don't need to um, uh, avoid necessary uh, health care or you know, frankly, even elective health care um, or fear that, you know, you're going to get the virus. And, um, and again, if you have an elderly person living at home with you, you take the same precautions as you've had up until this point. But uh, as Mark said, we're as busy, you know, we're as busy as we've ever been. Right. Uh, we need fragile handle with care labels that we can put on the people that need them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and if, I, and if I can say one more thing about mask wearage, mask usage. Um, so, what we didn't understand in March, um, we didn't understand the virulence, we didn't understand the prevalence, so we didn't understand how, how much was out there and how quickly it can spread. We were also trying to preserve the protective equipment for healthcare providers. But the most important factor, we didn't understand that this virus has a, such a profound asymptomatic spreading, meaning that your viral load is highest a week or two days before you actually start to get symptoms. Um, had we known that, the mask mandate would have been instituted from the very beginning. People's interpretation of that is the government, the healthcare providers, the scientists don't know what they're talking about. The reality is, though, that science is continually evolving. And, and I think the main point of this is exactly what Mark said in the beginning. This is a novel virus. We've never seen it. We don't know about it. Most of the data that we have is based on flu and cold. And, you know, these types of maladies, the ideal way to protect. So does a mask protect you or does it protect everybody else? The primary benefit is for an asymptomatic infected person to prevent them from spreading droplets. The ideal strategy would be called source control. If I could look in a crowd and say those six people have the, have the virus, uh -huh. they need to wear masks. That would reduce mm -hmm. almost all of the infections. Since we can't know that at this point, everybody's got to wear a mask. So that, that, that's the evolution of the recommendations. That's where we are now. I know you did a, you did a podcast or you did a, uh, a YouTube video on, on the valves. So I think that, that bears mentioning. Um, if you have an N95 or any mask with a valve, uh, you're you're not doing very much to help spread the virus because as you breathe out, as you exhale, the, you're just uh, pouring out those unfiltered respiratory droplets. Right. But 
you know, do you need an N95? Do you need a surgical mask? Do you need a cloth mask? Do you know what the best mask is? The one that you're going to wear. <laughs> that's it. The one that you're going to consistently, and that's comfortable. And, I mean, Mark and I are surgeons. We, I mean, I, I can't speak for everybody. I hate wearing a mask. You know, I hate wearing a mask all day. But um, it is what it is. It's the prevention strategy that we have. Um, so maybe I'm going to interrupt uh, real quick. I think that's the yeah. point that's really important is that everyone thinks it's all or nothing. It's either 100% effective or it's 0% effective. But that's not the case. The case is that if you are helping reduce it by some percentage, you are making a difference. Is that correct? I think it, you nailed it on the head. And and you don't have to wear a mask when you sleep or in the shower <laughs> or when you're at home or when you're with friends. Okay, but if you're out in public and you can't social distance, um, you know, if, if you're on a bike trail and there's no one around for 20 miles, you don't, you don't have to wear a mask. But let's try to adhere as much as we can, understanding that none of us like doing. But that's the most effective strategy we have right now. Right, and it just makes it just makes sense. I think that things will be more adopted, or I, I tend to want to adopt things when it's like, yeah, I understand that, okay, uh, and so I can I can adopt that and put that into my own practice. You know, my daily, what I do daily. But if it doesn't make sense, if I'm going, if I'm one of those people who says, you know, this just doesn't make sense. This is just, I just don't get it. Um, well, well, that's that's what's been so confusing. One of the things that's been so confusing about this, you hear people saying one thing, and now it's something else, and what makes sense. And I, I think, as we're understanding, I mean, I was one of the people in my office that said, we don't need to wear masks. Why are we doing this? It's, it's. <clears throat> um, we're, we're keeping everybody who's sick out of the office and screening them. And then we realized about how, how high a percentage, again, we're still not sure what that percentage really is, but it's thought to be 35, 40% of, of cases are asymptomatic. And given that, it, it changed everything. And, and then realizing we do have enough mass and it's not just for medical, you know, we don't have to worry at, at least where we are that we're going to run out of PPE. Sure. Um, so, so again, that, that all evolved to, to what Rick's been saying, how it makes sense to wear a mask at this point, if you can't socially distance, um, kind of interesting. You just never know with this. Um, you know, we hear you hear in the news about the, the healthy 40 year old got, got sick and, and died, you know, the, the rare exceptions, um, I have a 94-year-old cousin, this would be my mom's first cousin, who's in a memory care facility in the San Fernando Valley in Southern California, and her literal neighbor in the, in the, in the place got symptomatic and got COVID, so they tested everybody, and my 94-year-old cousin, who <laughs> is 94, has dementia, not super active anymore, has hypertension, has diabetes. Uh, this is now two months later. She is alive and well and doing great. Didn't nothing happen. And I heard a story her. just like that last night when we were talking with the with the neighborhood people. Um, an older person, just in her nineties, and they thought she was knocking on death's door, and she got it and she beat it. Yeah, everyone so was just unbelievable. They couldn't they couldn't figure out how that happened. <laughs> you know, not to minimize its potential effects. And you see the opposite happen as well, but it doesn't mean everybody who's over X age is automatically going to die. Right. It, it doesn't work that way, luckily. I, I'd like to well, get something very clear just bef before we go any farther, and the, that's the word asymptomatic. I, that's used all the time, but I suspect a lot of people don't really understand what that means and why that's such a big thing. What they think is, well, I, I'm not sick but you might not be sick, but, and then Dr. Rich, you used the word, the viral load, how much of this you have. So if you're an asymptomatic carrier, why is that so important to understand? Break that down so that people can really understand what that means and why that's important. So I think that there's, there's a couple good points that you're bringing up that um, bear discussion. Um, and, one of them is, I don't want to say natural immunity, but an acquisition of immunity through other means, 
through exposure to other common coronavirus colds. So, so that's something to understand. Um, viral load is something else to understand that mainly pertains to, uh, in the context that we're using it now, we're just describing that the highest virulence occurs when you're actually asymptomatic before you even know you're sick. And the third element is we don't understand certain individuals have a susceptibility, whether it's genetic, some susceptibility uh, with the ACE2 receptor and the type 2 pneumocytes in the lung that they just have a way more profound response, infection, inflammation, disease that is independent of their age and comorbidity. So if I can break those three things down quickly, um, we're discovering that there is a um, cross immunity between people who have gotten, so the coronavirus, even though this coronavirus is novel and new, the family of coronaviruses, so there's 27 different coronaviruses, four of which cause the common cold that have been around forever. So people who have been infected with the common cold have produced antibodies that are cross-reactive, cross-protecting against the coronavirus. And one theory is that since these children are getting sick all the time, you know, eating dirt, whatever they do, um, that is what is a possible explanation behind the extremely high uh, immunity or the extremely low risk of severe disease in children who contract the virus. And, and, and I think that's another important point. Children aren't immune. Children can get the virus. There's a misconception there, too. People are like, oh, children are immune. Send them to school. No. <laughs> children can get and spread virus in this asymptomatic way that we're talking about, meaning that they have no symptoms, they have virus, and they give it to their teacher and other people, they give it to grandma, and then those individuals get sick. So we have to be aware of that. But because of, perhaps because of the exposure to other types of common cold coronaviruses, they have a cross-reactivity in their immune system that has helped preventing uh, symptomatic or severe disease in certain people. Um, another subset of people, for whatever reason, young and healthy, have severe disease, and um, uh, you know, a 30-year-old can end up going on a ventilator, and even there can be mortality, they can die from it, and there's no other real explanation for that. Um, fortunately, those are case reports. Uh, those are outliers that don't follow the normal disease distribution as we go through different age cohorts. Most people fall into that risk factor. But as you're saying, with the elderly, um, some people do just fine. And it may be because of that uh, immunity that's conferred from these other infections. I had a friend who had stage four multiple myeloma. And it's like the one thing you can't do is get an infection. The first thing he did was get an infection <laughs> in March. And... And, you know, he did fine. Um, he had, you know, he was a little tired, you know, uh, but two weeks later, isolation, he was totally fine. So there, there are these cases. These are possible explanations for this viral behavior, or at least the human reaction, the human behavior to infection by the virus. And then the final thing I would mention is the concept of viral load, not necessarily um, uh, as, as we're talking about the – um, amount of virus at different stages of uh, symptom presentation. What I'm talking about here is healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers that are continually exposed time and time and time again to the virus. So in that context, the viral load. So seemingly young and healthy individuals, by virtue of the fact that they're being continually exposed, uh, have higher mortality uh, higher death rate, higher, more severe disease process. So I, I think those are three kind of important considerations that were, you know, still theoretical at this point, but things that make sense, things that we're learning.
Yeah, we're we're um, we're hearing <clears throat> even with the vaccines, um, you know, do we do we create an antibody to the vaccines? But they also talk about T cells, which which are part of our immune system in in fighting that specific infection and measuring the amount of T cells. And it's that cross-reactivity of other T cells from other coronaviruses that there, there was a small study that appeared to have benefit and be important. So, again, this is all evolving, but, but very important. But the big thing is you have people walking around who absolutely feel normal, are, have no symptoms at all, don't have a fever, don't have a cough, don't have a sore throat. They feel fine, and they're walking around and can be spreading the disease. And that, that's the important thing about with such a high percentage of asymptomatic people, that's one of the things that's made this very hard to control and, and prevent that spread from, from occurring. So I, um, I, I have to say something here. <laughs> I, I may go and take down a couple of videos that I put up just because, you know, this is the nature of things. We, as, we, as we live, we learn. And that's the amazing thing about knowledge, and you can apply that to the scientific method. Uh, new data comes up, we evaluate it, we say, well, what we understood before, not as correct as this new thing, so let's change our practices a little bit. Uh, I don't know if I personally, I'm not sick, I'm, I'm a healthy 59-year-old male, I have absolutely, I've got tons of energy. You guys are well, you're healthy, but we don't know. I mean, the only way I would know if I had a, this virus is to go and get a test, right? But why would a healthy person go and get a test? That's what I think. But if, see, I'm, I'm torn right now. I've always thought if I protect myself and you protect yourself, then we're protecting each other because we're both protecting ourselves, right? Does that make sense? And I thought, yes. and I thought, well, yeah. if the messaging was protect yourself and everybody's like, yeah, because most people are selfish. We're not altruistic. You guys are doctors. You're different. But the street people, uh, we, we've, we've, we've gotten the messaging coming out of the hospitals and being applied to the street. And in the hospital, we wear a mask to protect our patients who are compromised in whatever fashion they're compromised. Now here we are uh, out on the street, and you're telling me to wear a mask to protect you. And I'm like, why would I want to do that? I don't understand that. I want to protect myself. So if I was protecting myself, and you're protecting yourself, and Johnny's protecting himself, and Sally's protecting herself... We're all protecting each other by extension. So wouldn't there be more adoption of a message that was presented that way? So that was my thought process when I made a couple of videos. And I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm personally, I'm, I'm on record uh, from a video of, on, my, on my YouTube channel uh, in March, late March, where I, I interviewed an emergency room physician. And, you yeah, know, I saw that even, one. You know, in a jocular manner, we're like, ha ha, we're all wearing masks like a bunch of goofballs because the recommendations at that time were that you didn't need to do it. And it was because of the risk factors that we were not aware of. Um, but I think that if we look at this from the standpoint, and I, I mean, I had a good friend of mine who, you know, was very confrontational. He's like, you know, does your mask work? And I'm like, well, yeah. He's like, well, then I don't need to wear it. And it's this, it goes back to the source isolation, right? If, if we could know who had it, we would only put masks on those six people in a room of a hundred. Right. We, we don't. Right. And so this is the, this is the best, that we've got. And um, I would say another, another issue, cause there, there, there's a lot, I, I feel, I feel that the, the general population kind of has um, some hesitation, concern, loss of faith in that some of these recommendations are changing. And then if we look at um, treatments, medications, so uh, you know, Kaletra, Remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, all of those studies were in vitro studies. You put a virus in a dish, you throw some medicine at it, and it halts viral replication. But that doesn't necessarily translate into how the virus behaves in the human body. Right. And so whereas there were 
um, and again, I'm not going to get into the politicization of it at all, but there was some early evidence that some of these things may be helpful, um, didn't bear out as robustly in a clinical setting. And so, you know, maybe people are like, well, nobody knows what they're talking about. They keep making recommendations. But again, the science is evolving. And honestly, on its best day is a trial and error process. Right. But the great news is that as the data grows, the evidence accumulates and it does get better. Yeah. There's, I have a, um, a question for Rick uh, as, as far as far as in the OR, are you worried at all about bodily fluids, about plume from uh, that's contained during a laparoscopic procedure containing viral particles? Um, there's been a lot talked about it within our field, and that's evolved how people think. And I'm curious, in your neck of the woods, are, are, are you worried about that at all or taking any extra precautions or – how do, you, how do you feel? Well, there was a recent study uh, out of uh, UCSF uh, um, where uh, some of the – one of the uh, authors went so far as to say unless you're intubating people, you, you don't need an N95, right? And, I mean, obviously, if you're working on a COVID floor or you're in the ER, th those are the other examples. But the fact of the matter is in the hospital – before you come in, the patient undergoes a COVID test. On the day they come in, they get temperature screened, they have all the questions, family members exposed. Um, in the hospital, everybody's wearing a mask. Granted, it's a surgical mask, you know, it's not an N95, but everybody wears, everybody's social distances. Um, so, you know, up until now, I basically, everything I said is, um, essentially based off of research data, some expert opinion. This is my personal opinion you're asking for now. Yep. I'm not, I'm not worried. Um, and I don't mean to sound cavalier, but I'm basing my opinion off of scientific evidence. I'm, you know, in that uh, age range and uh, health range where the risks are exceedingly small. If I did get infected, I'm using all of the recommended measures. And I, because of those two considerations mainly, I'm not worried that I'm going to get the infection. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to suspend healthcare delivery. I'm not going to let my patient suffer their disease processes because I feel that um, the, the exposure is safe, the exposure risk, you know, is there. Um, again, this is my opinion now. I believe that the risk is probably mortality-wise, you know, the, the, the evidence, the jury is still out. It's probably, for, for me specifically, it's probably twice that of the flu. So I'm going to show up to work every day and give my patients the care that they need because I'm not going to be paralyzed by fear. Um, I'm going to react to the science and I'm going to, I'm going to um, uh, continue to discharge my duty as a healthcare provider in society and make sure that everybody gets the care that they need. So, so my personal opinion is extremely similar. I, I would, I would mimic pretty much what what you said. Um, I, I, I feel like there were some theoretical things at first, and I think it was the unknown. And people were talking, oh, we're worried about particles building up in in smoke created by what you're doing at surgery. And there's never been any other viruses that are infectious in that way. There's no reason to think this is any different. Um, as, I, as I explained to my patients, just what you said, they go, well, how safe is it for me? Well, listen, you're going to get a COVID test a couple days before surgery. I know you're negative. When you go into that pre-op room where there are other people in this large room, 
everybody in that room is either a healthcare professional being as careful as they can, wearing masks, or they're COVID negative because they were just tested. And if they weren't, they wouldn't be in that room. And um, and then majority of people go home, or if they don't go home and they stay overnight, they're they're in an area of the hospital um, well away from where the COVID patients would be. So they 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 really is no, nothing to fear from, from the patient's perspective. From my perspective, I think the risks are so small um, and we're taking all precautions. And, and um, I, you, you know, the only reason to wear a, a stronger mask is if you were worried about your coworkers. I mean, there's, there, there's nothing else there. So I feel very comfortable um, doing my job. And, and happy, happy to be able to be able to provide that care. Yeah, I, I, I love the way I would love the way you said that. I love the way you said that. Everybody in this room is a healthcare provider, following all the recommendations for your COVID negative. I love that. Yep. Yep. So the incredible irony of the great mask controversy of 2020 is that. Everybody that is not wearing masks under the guise of personal freedom are directly contributing to the delay for where we fully open up society. So the freedom, they want to be able to go to bars, do things, but directly, literally by not wearing masks and promoting spread directly results in further delays until we can open the country back up. Right. Because if, if everybody wore a mask, the case rate's going to go down faster and we can fully reopen faster. It's as simple as that. <laughs>